So that is the passage before us, and I've split it up into an A, B, and C to show you that there are three sayings here. And just to get your mind working, um, well, one thing compared to what you've just had read from the old NIV, you will see that this is the new NIV, and there are a few more welcomes where there were some receives in the reading. Okay, so you'll notice that. So like in B, whoever welcomes a prophet, etc., but will receive a prophet's reward. So there are a couple of different words going on. It is the same original. Uh, no, no, they are different words, different words actually. Um, but the one that they both have that idea of receive. Um, but welcomes is the appropriate one for the new NIV. Is 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 um, that's the verdict they've taken. But let me just ask you, as you're looking at these three statements. What is the common word between the first two sayings? And there's one common word between the second two sayings. Can you help me with that? What's the, what, what's the common word in the first two sayings? Welcome. Well, that's it. Welcome. All right, so it's got welcoming in there. And what, what comes into the second two sayings? That's it. Reward. I've coloured it up for you a little bit like that. Um, so anyone who welcomes me, who welcomes you, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. That's the first one. And then B starts to bring in the idea of a reward for those who welcome a prophet as a prophet uh, or a righteous person. And also someone in this very lowly act of giving a cup of cold water um, to a disciple. Truly, it says that person will not lose his reward. And it might, on the surface, look like, well, is it cryptic? Is this all meaning the same thing? And I just offer you these thoughts, uh, that in verse 41, it talks about whoever welcomes. But back in verse 40, it's uh, anyone who welcomes you. And in 42, it's talking about these little ones. And at least my proposal, having studied some of this, is that this is really all talking about a similar thing and not to be pulled apart as, um, you know, that this is about disciples and whether... And it, it includes the prophet and the righteous people. It includes what they're saying and they're, they're living in accordance with God's standards. And it's just saying, you know, people who welcome you will receive a reward... Uh, So let's move on. That's where I'm going to go in some main headings here. The importance of welcoming God's messengers. And I think this idea of the unity of the messenger in Jesus comes out. Just want to spend a bit of time there. And I think that the most difficult area for us to say anything very definite is in the nature of rewards. I think there's a main one we will all know about, but but whether there are other smaller detailed rewards is, is a bit more speculative as to how that works. And then there's some lessons for us. So the importance of welcoming God's messengers. Uh, so we are talking about people who speak God's message. Those are the prophets. And the meaning of the word righteous, you probably know, is, is, is to do with God's standards and those who live by it. But it's, it's interesting that you, they're not separated, really, that God's... Uh, messengers and God's people who live by his standard. It's kind of one and the same. 
You don't get people who have nothing to do with trying to live this out, trying to speak God's word. Uh, The two come together in the disciples. But let me ask you a question. Would you not think that upright people speaking God's truth would always be welcomed? Wouldn't you think? Most of us would say, oh yeah, of course we would. But then if you think back uh, not that many weeks ago when Phil was looking at verse 14 of chapter 10, you might just want to glance down there, Um, this word welcome crops up again there. But in that context, this was about not being welcomed, wasn't it? If anyone will not welcome you or listen to, to your words, it carried on like that. You remember the passage about offering peace to the house, but if they don't welcome you, the peace will come back to you. Um, but it says if you are not welcomed, and they were told not to go with money or food, they were told to expect hospitality, but if you're not going to be welcomed, leave and shake the dust off your feet was what came out then. And it goes on to say it will be uh, worse for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those. Phil drew that out quite well, didn't he? About how important it is. This welcoming business was quite critical. So there was a negative side to verse 14. And it's worth remembering the context that in the Roman Empire, who wanted emperor worship, and anyone who was saying, no, you know, Caesar is not God, but Jesus is, this was a risky business welcoming Christians. And we know it uh, from after, or around the time of Jesus' crucifixion, of course, Peter, who, who said he would never deny Jesus. But when the, when the, the pressure was on, he, he, even he got caught here. Um, it's a risky thing to show hospitality to Christians because someone might be coming after you. So it might seem kind of it's a small thing in our culture, someone who might be bringing God's message comes around and of course you just want to welcome and give hospitality. But I, the, other thing, the other context of this is, is we're used to um, relatively set gatherings apart from a few visitors in, in places. Now you have to picture Jesus moving around crowds of people uh, very enthusiastic about Jesus but not all of them yet uh, committed to the harder demands of discipleship and I think something in these words is recognising um, especially when you think of the, of, the, of the part in verse 42 that even if you're not on the front line uh, doing a lot of, of the key um, speaking God's message if you actually are just well disposed to and welcome, uh, especially when there's some risk attached, these small gestures, even giving a cup of cold water to someone in a hot climate who needs it, who is a messenger of God, these small gestures speak volumes. And Jesus is really recognizing in this rather different sort of gathering with some people who are interested but not yet committed, he he is saying that even those people in verse 42... Uh, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. So that was just a bit about welcoming. Now, notice the unity of the messenger and Jesus, and I will just read uh, verse 40 again. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. So it's just as if 
Jesus was being welcomed. So however those disciples bearing his message were received, Jesus felt that. And if they were indifferent or hostile, Jesus is feeling this very, very personally. And a while back when when I think I was looking at apostles with you, just to remind you, because at the end of that verse, um, whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And that's the word apostolos, um, to send, only used in the New Testament. This is the idea of being sent on a definite mission with that idea of accountability, acting with the full authority of the sender. So Jesus is you know, sending out his disciples with this authority and how people react to that is so, so important. But I'm just picking up this thread of how united Jesus is with his messengers. And I don't think we should think of the messenger as, as someone other than us because towards the end of Matthew 28, yes, we're all to go out into the world to make disciples so in a sense, I'm sure in our daily lives, we, we are all at times messengers. Uh, and so don't think, what has this got to do with, with me? And let me just uh, remind you of bits here. Some of this we read earlier. But it says the king, uh, I've summarized and abbreviated bits here. The king will say to this, this is a picture of the last judgment. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then there are all these phrases, for I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger. And and in each of these things he mentions, he says, and you gave and you supplied and you helped me in these areas. And the righteous people are saying, a little bit confused by this, Lord, you know, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty or a stranger? And and this reply is is so interesting, isn't it? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So that's how involved Jesus is uh, with his his messengers. I've got three verses coming up on this slide that just remind us of this unity between Jesus and uh, us. This is well known in John 1. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So there you get, if you're wondering how this works, there's a statement here that to those who have believed in his name, they are given the right to be born of God. And to unpack a little what that means, in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor your God with your bodies. Born of God, but the Spirit of God given uh, to be inside us. This is why Jesus is feeling so one with the messengers and feeling the pain or the or the welcome so keenly. And Chris reminded us on Wednesday, didn't he, with this verse? In Galatians 2.20, I thought it's so relevant to this. Uh, this is a believers talking, this is Paul talking, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
But what a thought. It's for this believer. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's a, it's a, it's a strange idea, uh, but, but it's, well, it, it's a lovely idea. But you have to pause a minute. I was thinking of um, an example that might be a more disturbing one, isn't it? Because this says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now that sounds like I've been just taken over by someone. Am I, am I just going to become a robot? In my mind, if you could just picture, some of you will remember Doctor Who. Do you remember the Cybermen in Doctor Who? No, I see. Only the older ones, maybe. But the Cybermen were like robots, and they took people, transmitted hypnotic signals, and then they, then they could... What did they do? They, they did these cyber changes to them so that they sort of started wandering around like robots all the same. And it was almost like they were absorbed and become all very clone-like. And everyone would have hated the thought. that Beforehand, you know, they had individuality... And now they were just, you know. That is nothing like what Christ does when he enters us. Because we are all made in his image. We are all, there are scriptures I won't touch on now, how different we all are. And how in heaven we still retain some of those differences. But this business about being indwelt by Christ actually is a freeing up thing. And it, it's, uh, for us to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, it just means that all those bad emphasis and selfishness and sinfulness that I had, I'm learning to put that on one side as I live for Christ. And because so, so much of the centre of God is giving out and selfless. So nothing like Cybermen. And here's just a quick overview. I won't pause on all of this. But what does it mean to be in Christ? Because this is about union with Christ. There's a lot of statements here. I'm not going to dwell on them. We are created in Christ. Crucified with him. Buried with him. Baptized into Christ and his death. United with him in his resurrection. Seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ is formed in believers. He dwells in our hearts. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is in us and we are in him. The church is one flesh with Christ. Believers gain Christ and are found in him. And in Christ we are justified, glorified, sanctified, called, made alive, created anew, adopted and elected. And you just see how rich this idea of being in Christ is. So when we are out there living this life in submission to God's standards, seeking to explain it to others, these are all the things that are true of us that make us rejoice deeply. But what a... What a intimate union there is between us and Christ and then the third section is about rewards so I want to, this is probably the one that will make you think a bit more what, what immediately comes to mind the prospect of rewards I suppose a lot of us are thinking about work situations we're in you might think about how much you're paid you might think of I don't know what, what kind of rewards you might just think of. If you're children, you might just be thinking about birthdays and presents. 
rewards, what you can have, what you're looking forward to. But let me remind you just to turn your mind somewhere else. You remember Star Wars? And I just want to quote you a couple of lines about Han Solo, who was being asked to help Princess Leia. Right? And Luke is trying to reason with him, and he says, he says, listen, if you were to rescue her, the reward would be more than you can imagine. And Hans, some of you know this film, he pauses and he says, I don't know, he says, I can imagine quite a bit. Yeah? And then later on, Hans is talking to Princess Leah and he says, I ain't in this for your revolution, I'm not in it for you. I expect to be well paid. I'm in it for the money. That was what Hans Solo was about. And the princess says, very putting him down, you don't need to worry about your reward. Money is all that you love and that's what you'll get. Yeah? Sorry for those who don't know the film. But there's one idea of reward. And I wonder if you're thinking ahead uh, to heaven. What are you expecting as you think of a reward? What is the reward spoken about in these verses? Because it's one thing that is clear is it's not perfectly clear. It's not spelled out what it all is. Uh, The Greek word mythos I understand it, it, it really has the idea of um, giving a course of action what it deserves. Not necessarily uh, always a good thing. So sometimes it's rendered as wages. Matthew 20, verse 8, and a few other references there. Negatively, Judas's blood money is called the reward of his wickedness. That is this word. So as we look at what this, when it says in these verses that, let's just read those. Verse 41, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. What, um, what could it mean? So if we're talking about prophets, um, it could could mean, if you, some of you will know the story of the widow at Zarephath, you could look in 1 Kings 17 if you wish, but I'll give you the gist of it. It could mean that if you welcome a prophet, that whilst this very uh, supernaturally able one is with you, as happened to the widow at Zarephath, I'll just remind you of this story, she was running out of her oil, yeah, and also her flour, and Elijah comes to her and says, will you make me some bread? And she pretty much says, yes, well, I will make you this bread, but after that we'll have no more and then we're going to die because we haven't got enough. Uh, and Elijah makes sure in a miraculous way that her jar of flour and oil doesn't run out. You remember that lovely miracle? But also later on in the story, her, her son dies and Elijah with supernatural uh, help from God brings her son back to life. So that's a reward it could mean, welcoming a prophet, someone who um, perhaps has uh, able, the God is able to work more supernaturally through them. It also could mean, and if you turn, well, just look at Matthew 5 here, I'll, I'll read it. This could be an idea of tough times now with blessings later. We've been through this earlier when we were looking at the Beatitude. Blessed are you when people insult you, 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. And we were all scratching our heads thinking, are we? Um, Because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets before you. So the reward of prophets might be a bit uncomfortable for us at the moment. might be quite painful. Or this reward could be just similar to what a prophet will receive because of when, when he meets Jesus, whatever God will give him in heaven apart from just eternal life. So I can't categorically say, you can't rule any of these out. It could be either or any of these. But it is worth looking back at the context of where we have come in verse 39, just the last verse. What is this about? Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So just before we get into this passage, this is about finding true life. So in that context, the reward has got to be something to do with finding true eternal life. And in Matthew 25, which we read as one of those two readings, it spells out a reward as the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And in a nutshell, it is eternal life rather than uh, eternal fire. And as we touched on when Phil dealt with this about welcoming and going to worthy houses, uh, this is a high-stakes thing about how these sent ones are received. Because it's clear from this verse that those who welcome God's God's messengers and those who live by his standards are, are deserving of a reward, but those who don't, from that earlier passage, verse 14 onwards, uh, high stakes on, on how the sent ones are received. But I think we can all agree that in the main, uh, this reward, which is a, a stupendously big and wonderful one in itself, what is our reward that we don't want to lose out on and that we're being offered This is the reward of eternal life, seeing him whom we love, having no more sadness and sin. And we've touched on it, Phil has dealt with it, even looking through Revelation. This is not sitting on a cloud, stringing your heart, getting bored. This is something, if we said a taste of of what heaven will be like, if we see a taste of it in the variety of creation at the moment, then when God does a new creation, I don't think we're going to run out of things to interest us. Uh, So that is a wonderful, um, fantastic reward in itself. But in smaller details, and uh, as I said, we might just have a chance for a few comments when I finish before communion. In smaller details, our rewards may differ. There are verses and and parables that suggest this. Um, Jonathan Edwards said about heaven, every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full though there are some vessels far larger than others, and there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. So perhaps in so far as how we've walked on earth has helped us to drink more deeply of God, there, there may be some richer experience. I'm not going to 
speak categorically about this, but there is just the, the sense that we are all different. Some more simple, some it just you know that we're just very different. And uh, but yes, none of us is going to be full of envy. None of us is going to be looking at other other people thinking, hmm, why have they got you know? That's not going to be a thought that's there. And there are other things. Let's just turn together to Matthew 20, which I think is the parable of workers in the vineyard. Because this uh, is something that gives a hint that rewards might not be just as we think. If we think, oh, so-and-so who's lived such a godly and committed life and done so much, you know, they're going to have palaces in heaven. Um, I'll just read, because I think you know this one quite well, I'll just read verses 12 to 16. But this is about workers. The first ones that came, it was a, 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 a wage agreed for the day's work. And if you remember the story, other workers come in later. And then at the end of the day, the, the, the worker actually dealing with the people who came later first, he gives them all the same. And let's just read in verse 12 of Matthew 20. Uh, Those who were hired last worked only one hour. And they said, And you have made them equal to us and who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So who of us can really guess as we look around uh, on any differences in reward? But certainly uh, that passage, I think, gives us, gives us a, something to think about. So I'll come to lessons now from, from this. And some of this uh, I hope you'll find interesting. The question of welcoming sounds like a very simple question I started with. Do we welcome those who speak God's message and live by his standards? And of course we're all thinking in church where uh, we're all very used to this. Well, of course we do. We welcome them. We, we love this stuff. We um, but I want to just sharpen your thinking. This might be a slight tangent, but I hope not. I hope just a helpful one. But I want to pick up some thoughts about how we handle tough times before we just say, oh, yes, we welcome God's message. Because actually for some people going through very tough experiences, and I dare say there are some here tonight whose experience of God's uh, face upon them at the moment is it's, it's hard, very hard. And, and to actually turn around and say whether you welcome uh, God's message and his standards is a, is a difficult one. And I wanted to give a little plug to this book, which is one of my, a favourite book of mine, by Philip Yancey. It's a book called Disappointment with God, which is a very provocative title. And I'll just give you the gist of a little bit at the start of this. Because Philip Yancey, who's a very able writer, he, he says that a young student Richard who had been looking at Job gave him a study on it uh, to look at but then this young Richard his life fell apart says his parents split up 
job opportunity fell through which left him in debt with college. His girlfriend, who happened to be a key spiritual prop to him, left him. And for him, it just seemed like God was so absent and never answered his prayers. So he was... um, He just got to this point where it was all doing so well that that it fell apart. And Philip Yancey, interestingly, thought a lot about this guy. And he thought a lot about these things. He says, would you you sum this up and say that you think God is unfair? The title of this book is Three Questions No One Asks Out Loud. Right? Do you think God is unfair? Do you think he's silent? All those times in the middle of his parents splitting up when he was praying and hoping it wouldn't happen and it didn't seem to be answered. Is God hidden? And he said yes. But then the interesting thing, and it's just a a way of helping you to think about tough times, um, he was reading through Exodus and Numbers and and the time of, uh, of, of God's people coming out of and Moses with his face shining and the pillar of cloud around the people. And he says, you know, maybe at the moment God isn't always very visible and lots of things that you look out on in life don't appear to be very fair. But it's not always been so. You think about this time, um, if you think God is unfair, it was very predictable in those days when the law was given that if you obey this covenant and do this, you'll be blessed. And if you ignore this, it will go bad for you. Very clear, very fair. So if it came hard on you, because you'd ignore God's... That was perfectly fair. Couldn't argue that one in those days. Was God silent? No, because he'd given them, I think it counts up to over 600 laws. So if you were trying to work out what you should be doing, there was lots of things, lots of things you should know in the Bible. So God was, was not silent. Was he hidden? No, because in Moses as a leader, face is shining, pillar of cloud and saying Very visible God was. But the question comes... Was this good for their faith? Did they thrive well under this? And the sad thought seems to be no. No, their faith didn't flourish when everything was so visible. So their faith didn't grow much. Let's go back for that. But I just, I just say for those, I'm trying, I don't know whether it's a little bit of a tangent, but if you're thinking, how much do I welcome God's message or even the people who live like this, if any, any of you, and there are some of you, I'm sure, you're struggling, you're thinking, no, everything isn't working out for me, this is hard. That, that there are reasons that we won't understand why it isn't always spelled out to us. And there are hard questions. But actually, when God does, you know, some people would say, oh, if Jesus, if I saw more miracles today, I'd believe. Well, there were lots of people in Jesus' day who saw miracles, and they didn't believe it. They saw it right in front of their noses, and it made them turn away. So not everyone was drawn. So, so that might be a be- little tangent, so don't come at me too hard if you're questioning that. But I, just, I think that's an interesting thought in here about some tough questions. But I didn't want to miss on the idea of welcoming that verse 42 back in Matthew 10. It does say, uh, And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple... Truly, I tell you, that person will not lose their reward, will certainly not lose their reward. So there, the bar is not very high here. And that if you would just do something, you don't have to look at, oh, I can't have people in my home for days and weeks and look after them, but I can do something small. 
God really sees those small things. The bar is not high. But the stakes are, when you look at Matthew 25, which we did, uh, about, uh, uh, and we've touched on it already, about verse 14, you know, if you don't welcome God's message, messengers compared to when you do welcome, and, and how that leads to an eternal destiny, come those who are blessed or depart from me. The stakes are very high on how we respond. So that was about welcoming. Now about uh, rejoicing in the privilege of being made like God, being part of his family. And we touched on those verses. There's a, a big long list of what it meant to be in Christ. These, these are things that we should really rejoice in. Uh, the hope of eternal life, those rich blessings made alive in Christ. And God says, go and make disciples, and he also comes in, I will be with you. So we are one with Christ, not doing it on our own. And just as much as in this world he is with us, helping us, it means later he will take us to be with him to share what he has with us. So we are Christ's body here on earth. That's how Paul puts it. Christ's body. Uh, there's a song, uh, just a challenge here. If we are his body by casting crowns, uh, just a few words from it. It says, if we are the this is just a challenge to how awake we are and what we're doing. It says, if we are the body, why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? And if we are the body, why aren't his feet going? Why is his love not showing them there is a way? So there is much to unpack in just remembering that we're not robots. God's gracious and lovely presence is with us. We are united with him. That's a great security as well as a great blessing. And then the rewards theme. Are you expecting better than average rewards in heaven? Well, have a look at Matthew 18 if you're even slightly getting... Uh, tempted to be wondering about such things. And I'll just read verses 1 to 4. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked a very provocative question. They said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes, very much on our theme this phrase, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So I'm nearly done, but I just wanted you to think... Uh, what it might be like is, is, so in essence we have touched on already what is the essence of this reward as I think ahead um, just to be free of sin and to, to see Jesus what will I feel like do you ever wonder what you can, will feel like what will it be like seeing him more than we've ever dreamed of And there is a lovely song, some of you will know it, but I just want to quote you a few verses in closing, a few lines from a song. Uh, I can only imagine. 
This is by Mercy Me. Some of you will know. It's a very well-known one. It says, I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me, surrounded by your glory. What will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall. Will I sing hallelujah? Or will we be choked? Will I be able to speak at all? Because I think that just sums up to me that the reward of just being with Jesus will be plenty. And anything else he wants to unpack, well, we'll just take that as it comes, won't we? So thank you for that. And we are going to try a new song. Um, 